Well, I want to thank Reed for inviting me to come and be a part of your service today. As I told the earlier service, I know that it is always something that is a, a great sense of stewardship that rests upon a pastor for his people. And when he turns his pulpit over to someone else, he does not do this lightly. And so I take it as a, as a real stewardship that the Lord has given me and as a trust that Reed has given me also. I was instructed by my friend Jim Elliff to make sure that I express deep appreciation to all of you for your parts in the conference and for sponsoring that conference, for allowing us to come. It was a blessing to us. It was very, very edifying in our own experience and to renew fellowship with Jim and to have, uh, in a sense, renewed fellowship with Reed because I'd come to know him somewhat in a, a J term out in California about a year and a half ago. Uh, it has been a great privilege for us, and so we appreciate your vision in uh, helping sponsor that conference uh, and helping introduce others in this area to some of the, uh, the great themes and ideas that are intrinsic to the glory and wonder of the Christian faith. Uh, yeah, what, a, what a great blessing it was. I hope that we can continue in that spirit and that we can... Since the glory of God this morning, as we look at his word, I want you to turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, please. While you're turning, I'm, uh, it's gone now, but uh, so happy to know that there's another connection we have with each other. I had Phil Rimmers as a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and was uh, often in contact with him. He would come by my office and we would talk for, uh, oh, just for 15, 20, 30 minutes, several times about issues that he was dealing with, theological issues, personal issues, and then vision issues of missions. And I am so happy that uh, I get his newsletter and to know that you are sponsoring him and you are praying for him is just a tremendous sense of bonding that I have with you and with him. He is a, just a great person, really a wonderful, sincere uh, man who has, uh, I think, sort of uh, reached a a plateau that many of us have not in forsaking the things of the world in order to pursue the glory of Christ through the spread of his name. And so I'm glad that you're praying for him and supporting him in the way that you are. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Let's have prayer together. Father, I do pray that you would take this that is your word, this that is designed to lead us to a complete trust in you and to see the glory of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your Spirit would perform that work that he himself has come to do to take the things of Christ and show them to us. 
to open our minds and our hearts and our affections to love and to know and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, to find in Him our delight, to find in Him our security, to find in Him our hope, to know that we know You, the one true God, through Him, and that we are ministered to by the Spirit because of Him. We praise You for these great blessings and pray that we would become uh, more conscious recipients of them and be sanctified and conform to his image as a result of what we hear and think this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, had written perhaps more than two letters to the church at Corinth. Uh, from what we know other places, this is maybe the, the third or the fourth letter that is written, and yet I'm confident that we do not miss anything in the fact that we have, do not know what these other two letters are because he deals in a very intense and a concentrated way in these letters what he dealt with in those other letters that he mentions. But he is uh, in a, a bit of, uh, of turmoil, I think, about the church in Corinth. He is both congratulating them on their growth in grace and on their willingness to suffer, uh, on the gifts that uh, obviously operate among them, and yet he is somewhat perplexed that they perhaps so easily believe other so-called apostles that come among them and preach something different from what Paul preached. Just like the church at Galatia that he said heard those that preach another gospel, he said to these at Corinth that they preach another Christ which is not a Christ. And in the passage that was read earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he is trying to show to the Corinthians something about his credentials as an apostle. What it is that went on in his life to show that he was genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ and had been, as it were, conquered by Christ to be used as his instrument. He joined in the sufferings of Christ. He is the one who participated in the same hatred that the world has for Christ, was poured out upon Paul himself. These were his credentials, that he suffered the same sort of rejection that Christ suffered. And like Christ, who bled for the church, bled and died for the church, Paul has something of the crowning of all of his sufferings, the daily concern and even anxiety for the church. And in order to show something about the way that Christ works in him and what his own hope is, in order to, to set the stage for understanding the, the validity of his ministry and his gospel among them, this little vignette of life he sets forth for us in order to commend to us the same kind of trust and the same kind of hope that Paul in all of his sufferings had in Christ. So we see him open up to us something about his life. He says that he is a man in great affliction. He wants them to know the affliction that he had in Asia. He is perhaps talking about the affliction that came there in Acts 19, where Paul had had a meaningful ministry in Ephesus. And as a result of this, there were some people that were disturbed. And one Demetrius, a silversmith, caused a great riot and in fact, the, the scripture describes it in such a way as the people were in danger. They were so enraged. There was so much anger involved. The speeches were going on. Screaming was going on for two hours. And only with great difficulty was this repressed. We don't have everything that was done, but, 
Uh, Luke sets this forth for us in a way and so that we will know how intense a situation this was and how much hostility there was to Paul and his company. In fact, Paul wanted to go in and explain what was going on into the theater. And some of Paul's friends that were called Asiarchs, some of the, uh, the leaders, some of the governing officials uh, in that area refused to let him go in because they knew he would be torn apart if he went in. So he had a great affliction, and there was something that came upon him at that time in which he says he was burdened excessively beyond our strength, so we despaired of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Have you had an affliction like that? Have you had something going on in your life in which you despaired? some particular period of life in which you felt like everything was going wrong, your life as you had laid it out and all the security that you had was somehow being taken away and you wondered if you were not fixing to die, you wondered if life as you saw it was going to change so radically that it would be something that would absolutely kill you, something you simply could not cope with. It was beyond your strength. It was You had no way of dealing with it. Sometimes this happens as a result of just situations where things happen that we don't seem to have any control over, and we are greatly afflicted. Sometimes it happens because of our struggle with indwelling sin. The Apostle Paul dealt with this in Romans 7 when he talked about the power of indwelling sin in his life and how that it seemed to interrupt even his best desires to serve Christ and to know Christ and to be conformed to the holiness and the spirituality of of, of the law of God as it would conform his mind to Christ. He had a desire for this, and yet... The flesh so assaulted him that he realized that he was a wretched man. He could be under the wrath of God still. And yet, he is setting forth this kind of affliction for us in order that we might have a better hope. We see this kind of affliction has occurred to the people of God in every age. It is not something that occurs only to us. The depth of despair that Paul experienced here is the same depth that you can experience and will experience at times and is the kind of depth of despair that we see reflected in the writings of the saints of God throughout history. We could not read the writings of Edwards or Fuller, as we talked about, or of George Mueller, without realizing that there were times when it appeared that all was lost and despair was all they had. This is reflective of exactly what happens in a fallen world and in fallen people who are trying to, to deal with the corrupting power of this world. The psalmist, Psalm 88, the sons of Korah, wrote something about despair that I think is unparalleled in Scripture, perhaps with the exception of the Garden of Gethsemane, where the despair of our Lord is in a full light, a full vision that he has of the wrath of God coming upon him for the sins of his people. But short of that, this chapter, Psalm 88, has a more despairing look at life than I think I've seen anywhere. The only word of hope that we have is in the opening address. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and night before you. And then he has this note of confidence. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. So there is the hope he has. But listen to his situation. My soul has had enough troubles. My life is drawn near to Sheol. He's saying what Paul said, the sentence of death was written upon my soul. I despaired of life. I'm reckoned among those 
who go down to the pit. I'm become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. My goodness. Does he really think that's what's going to happen to him when he dies? Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more? They are cut off from your hand. Is that really the case? It was in his soul at this time. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Now notice this. Your wrath has rested upon me and you have afflicted me with all your waves. He is aware that he is a man that deserves wrath. He does not like the affliction he's having. He is in despair over it. He is crying to a God that he sees, the God of his salvation, but exactly how the fact that he is a God of salvation and yet he is under a sense of deserved wrath is bound to be a part of his perplexity. It is bound to be a part of his despair. He's a God of salvation, but he feels that he's experiencing divine wrath upon him. You've removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I'm shut up and I cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I've called upon you every day, O Lord. I've spread out my hands to you. He's not hearing the voice of God. He's calling out to this God of salvation. Where is he? Why doesn't he change my situation? Why doesn't he give me some relief? Oh, look at what he says in verses 10 through 12. Will you perform wonders for the dead? It's a good question. When we're in that kind of despair, we want to praise God in this life. We know we're going to die. If we die in despair, will, will he perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? He ends the psalm. Verse 18, you have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. He never recovers. He doesn't have any word of hope other than addressing the God of salvation. Can the saints of God feel that way? Well, yes, they can. And they can feel that way for the same reasons, just a simple feeling of abandonment, but also somehow at the bottom a recognition that we're sinners and it is just for God to treat me this way. But he's a God of salvation. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of loving kindness. He's a God of faith. Will there be a time when I can, if he brings me down, will there be a time when I can testify to his loving kindness? This is a person who is contemplating the realities of God as a redeeming God and a merciful God, and yet we know there's something short in the experience that he has. There's something short in the nature of the revelation that he has. We see the same kind of thing, not this severe, but nevertheless something that is uh, present. In Psalm 105, the first part of this, and in this psalm we see something of of what the saints of old had to rely upon as they considered the ways of God, as they considered how he dealt with them. 
Psalm 105 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of his wonders. Give glory to his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O oh, seed of Abraham, his servant. O oh, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. And then he goes through a historical survey of all the ways in which God has been faithful to his covenant. And yet if we look at them, we recognize that what the psalmist is talking about here is he's talking about the promises of God. He's talking about the providence of God. He's talking about the revelation of the character of God. He's talking about the covenant of God. I'm sure the psalmist in Psalm 88 had all of these things before him, and yet somehow he is still plunged into despair because Where is it in all of these promises and providences and all of this description of the character of God and in the covenant of God, where does it appear to us that God who is justly wrathful toward us can actually continue to be favor, to be, to hold us in favor? What is there a manifestation beyond this revelation of his purpose that actually secures for us these promises? That lets us know that these providences are not mere figments of our imagination that are going to go away and then all of a sudden turn upon us. The same power we have seen exhibited in our favor could justly come upon us and destroy us. Where is the assurance of that? Well, we know that they lived in some assurance of that. We know that they praised the Lord. We know that they could come out of this kind of despair. And that is a great hope to us. Psalm 107 is an affirmation of that, where we see the psalmist there describes people in four different situations who come into great trouble and they're in despair. It doesn't go into detail describing the depth of the despair, but we can see something about How many different avenues of life lead to this kind of affliction and despair? The first one, we have a person that's wandering in the wilderness in a desert region. This is perhaps describing what the the children of Israel were like. And this wilderness is something that made them hungry and thirsty and their soul fainted within them. But they cried to the Lord and the Lord answered. And then the psalmist says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. They're praising God for his loving kindness because he fed them. He gave them water. He met a temporal need. Their affliction was something that was related to a temporal reality, and they praise God for his loving kindness for meeting them. The next thing we see is we see people who are rebels. There are those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Why, these above all deserve to be cast off by God. He has counseled them. He has given them His words. They have rebelled. But God comes in loving kindness and mercy. God comes upon them and changes their heart and He forgives them and He says... Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders of the sons of men. He has shattered the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron asunder. 
Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Shattered those chains. Shattered the gates of bronze. Shattered those things that were indicative of our rebellion against him. Praise God for his loving kindness. We have others who are rebellious because of their pure foolishness. Fools, because of their rebellious way and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all kinds of food and they drew near the gates of death. They had put themselves in a path of death. They ignored all of the good things that God had given. They ignored the words of eternal life. They ignored His glory. All the good food that would help them, they shoved aside and they put themselves in the path of death. They legitimately had death written over them. They legitimately were looking the grave in the mouth, seeing the wrath of God in it, deservedly so, simply because they were fools that ignored what God had said and the good things He had put before them. But even these, <laughs> God is gracious. Even these, the end of that stanza says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His works and joyful singing. And then there are some who are simply going about their business. They're just going about doing what they're doing. It's a, if perhaps this is a sea captain or perhaps it's a businessman taking a trip to some place where he's going to engage in business. And he's just doing what he's supposed to do. He's laboring in a right way. He is, he is using the gifts and the, the technology that God has given him to make a living. And all of a sudden, something happens. A storm comes up. He's reeling, staggering like a drunken man. The people are at their wits end, but God enters and causes the storm to be still. The psalmist says, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. And then the psalmist closes in verse 43, who is wise, let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. This happens to people in every age. Affliction comes upon us. But look at how these yearn for some sort of a word, yearn for something that can give them the desire or give them the reality of God's merciful intentions toward them. Something that can rescue them. And then we have some that give testimony that indeed they are rescued. We have this picture of God's providence, His promises, His covenant, His character, how He has conducted Himself in history. They have all the examples of how God has rescued people. But what does Paul say? When Paul has the sentence of death written on him, what does he say? This happens so we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In God who raises the dead. Wow. You know what Paul is saying there? You know what he's getting at? Reed talked yesterday a little bit about Hebrews 11 and all of the heroes of the faith that went before the coming of Christ and how they were faithful and faithful even unto death. And some had as the reward of their faith being sawn asunder, being killed. And yet... They were faithful, though they did not receive the fulfillment of the promise. And then Hebrews 12, 1 says, 
Seeing therefore that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, thinking the shame to be nothing because of the joy set before him, and is sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. That's what the Apostle Paul has in mind. All of those who went before had promises and covenant and providence and had hopes, and yet the hopes did not seem to be fulfilled. But all Paul does when he is in the depths of despair, when he has a despair like any of these that we have described in the Psalms, the thing that he does is he says, I trust in God who raises the dead. And now if we ask the question, well, will the dead praise God? Paul says, look at the resurrection. Look at Christ who bore our sin and is raised from the dead. Yes, the dead will praise God. You can ask the question, well, from Abaddon, will there come any evidence of the righteousness of God? Oh, yes, the righteousness of God is completely manifested in the death of Christ. And we will come forth and we have a place wherein dwelleth righteousness that we will go to. God raises the dead. Is there any, main, uh, any way in which we will see the loving kindness of God manifest? Yes, His loving kindness has persevered and has persevered even to the giving of His beloved Son so that He becomes a substitute for sinners and everything that causes us despair is washed away. It is done away with because Christ has died. Christ has entered into the grave. Christ has paid the price. The Father is satisfied with His death and as a necessary consequence of his being satisfied with his death raises him from the dead. And in our nature, as our substitute, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm in despair. The sentence of death is written over me. Circumstances has overwhelmed me. Indwelling sin makes me recognize that I deserve the wrath of God, and yet I trust not in myself, but in God who raises the dead. The wages of sin is death. You should be dead and stay there. But God, by His mercy, by His grace, because of Christ, because He died the just for the unjust, now raises the dead. Should we ever, could we ever, Remain in a Psalm 88 despair? I'm not saying could we ever enter into it. Yes, we could. We have the same psychological makeup. We're made in the image of God the same way. It has been fragmented the same way. We consider the wrath of God in the same way. But is it not true? Is it not true that in the progress of redemptive history, we have come to a place where we have such more brilliant light, we have so much more of a revealed hope? Is this not exactly what we sang about a moment ago when Paul prayed for those Ephesians that he wanted them to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him in order that they might know what was the hope of his calling? 
And what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? Which is like that power which He manifested when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His own right hand in heavenly places with powers and principalities and authorities being made subject to Him. And He has done all of this for the sake of the church. Us. Those who have been called by His grace. And so the simplicity of this statement carries within it a world of comfort and hope and fulfillment of promise and loving kindness and righteousness and praise and glory for eternity. God who raises the dead. Do you hope in God who raises the dead? Have you had affliction? Have you had despair? Have you had something that cut in on your plan for life? Have you had something that made you think that perhaps God was abandoning you and perhaps His plan was not working out in your life? Well, just look at God who raises the dead. Christ, by the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's been raised from the dead. And if you've trusted Him, He is your Redeemer. Nothing can enter your life but that which is designed to make you like Him and to share His glory. You've lost a job. You've lost a child. You've heard word that you have cancer. You have lost a friend. You have some dark cloud of despair and doubt that has descended upon you that you cannot explain and it's a combination of so many things that it would take 75 counselors all of their life just to sort them out. But you know what? All that's nothing to a God who is raised, who raises the dead. To a God who has placed all of our sins and all of our sorrows and all of our iniquities and all of our law-breaking on Him. The one who has said that it is for the chastisement, uh, it, is for, it, it, is, it was the chastisement for our peace that He endured these things. By His stripes we are healed. And the fact that God was satisfied with all of that is seen in that He raised Him from the dead. Oh, if you think about what was involved in Christ's being raised from the dead, there is no earthly thing. Contemplate on it. Think about it. Realize what has been done. No earthly thing can keep you in despair. Paul discovered that quickly. The sentence of death was written within ourselves so we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. You have no greater problem than the problem you had when you were a child of wrath and under his wrath. There's nothing that comes into your life now that can cause greater despair than you should have had when you realize that you were a sinner separated from God and that you were on the road to eternal wrath in hell. And yet he intervened. He sent Christ historically. He sent the Holy Spirit existentially to change your heart so that you would embrace Christ and come into union with Him and enjoy all of the blessings that the Father loves and delights to give those who are in union with His beloved Son. You have no problem that is superior to that one that you had before you came to Christ. The Apostle Peter had this in mind exactly when he is setting forth before those that are in the midst of great Suffering. 
this particular vision of the wonder that is ours in being the recipients of the gospel. He says in 1 Peter 1, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. He bypasses everything else and says, look at this. The outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. We minimize that so much. Yeah, but I got all these problems. I need all this counseling. I got all this. I mean, if we don't get on well in this life, it's pie in the sky by and by. Who cares about that? Pie in the sky by and by. Well, it's not just pie in the sky by and by. Eternal life is life with God. It's that thing for which we were created. It's that which manifests the greatest glory that can ever be imagined. And Peter is not ashamed to say that this is the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Look, these are before Christ. They're saying, oh, something wonderful has happened. There is a Messiah coming and there's going to be suffering and glory. What does this mean? Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. What grace God has given you to be born on this side of the cross so that you do not have to, even as God's child, to be somehow in this wandering stage, how is God going to be just and yet justify those who have faith in Christ? How can the dead speak of his loving kindness? How can his righteousness be manifest in the grave? We trust not in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Amen. Glory to God. He did that. And it's clear. It's happened It's no longer that you have to say, well, God has promised this and God has acted this way and I have to deduce from all of these things that somehow it's going to work out. No, he's raised the dead. Jesus has died, the just for the unjust, that he might lead us to God. And the last thing that I want us to see is that affliction and despair is the first thing. What is the nature of affliction and despair? And we see its depths and its horror. But the brightness and the glory of the situation we have by being now able to trust in a God who has done what he has promised so that he can be just and justify those who have faith in Christ by raising the dead. And now we have the privilege of this wonderful network in God's people of seeing his will accomplished By prayer. We should be involved in every activity we can possibly be involved in for righteousness and for peace and for holiness and for love of neighbor in the world. That which Sky has announced everyone should participate in as much as possible. That is our obligation. But we should never fall into the trap of thinking that somehow prayer is a cop-out. That somehow prayer is just, well, I mean, that's spiritual. We can pray. But, boy, if we don't get up there and do something, then we're not, 
We're not accomplishing it. We should do something. But we should also recognize that God has set forth through prayer real things that are going to happen. I don't know that we can ever understand this, but there are several things in Scripture that indicate something about the power of prayer. You know, God made the world. He's the one who sustains the world. There's already the operation of that, who, the one who is the immutable, eternal, infinite spirit. God is spirit, yet interacting with this created, finite, material order in such a way that it operates just as he sees fit. And all the principles upon which it, which it operates are simply manifestations of of his absolute consistency. But he can enter in without breaking his consistency in any way in doing things that appear to us to be uh, violations of natural law. Well, they're not. They're just in accordance with his purpose, and he's upholding it. So he can part the Red Sea, and he can let people walk over on dry land simply because he wants to, and he can cause the wind to come and blow it and do it just like that, and it's a miracle. He can take loaves and fish and he can multiply them ad infinitum until everyone has had their fill, even when it looks to us like it cannot feed more than one little boy. He can do it because he's the creator without violating what we call natural law. It is the consistent interaction of God with his world. And he wants us to come into an understanding of how he works in the world so that we can have the mind of Christ and move in line with Him and we can make requests and see Him act in this world. And when we begin to come into the mind of Christ and when we are conformed to Christ and we begin to lay requests before God that are for His glory, asking Him to act in this world, He will do it. He will answer prayer. So Paul can say, you... He will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. We pray, God answers. Wow! We thank God for doing something we ask because we perceive that it was His will that Paul come out of this peril in order that he be able to to sanctify his churches through the teaching of truth. God would deliver him. We prayed God did it because our mind was in accord with God's purpose. He says the same thing in the book of Philippians in chapter 1, verse 19, for he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Nothing is impossible with God. We should know that because of his character. We should know it because of his provision. We should know it because of his providence. We should know it because of his promises. We should know it because of his covenant. But he's been so gracious to us. He has actually done it in raising the dead. Everything he promised, all the covenants are yea and amen in Christ. We trust in him who raised the dead. Christians, is there anything that can fall outside the parameters of God's will for your life as he seeks to mold you according to the image of Christ? Is there anything that should cause you to despair and not realize that God is in this because God is one who raises the dead? 
Oh, we're, we're creatures of dust. We're frail. We will fall into these kinds of things. But we need quickly to look at this fact that God has given a final word about what this world is and about his control over it in that he has raised the dead, the Lord Jesus. Are you without Christ? Have you never placed trust in him? In a way far more serious than that which Paul describes here when he says the sentence of death was within ourselves. You have the sentence of death within yourself written over you. You're a child of wrath and you're under the wrath of God because right now you have no interest in Christ. You do not benefit from his resurrection. You do not benefit from his atoning work. You have the promise of the purpose of God and the promise of the love of God, the unbroken wonder of God's love, but it is only in Christ. He commends his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You experience that love of God only in Christ. And the message to you is to lay down your arms, lay down your rebellion, lay down your foolishness, lay down your disobedience. See yourself as a person under the wrath of God, justly under the wrath, but he is one who raises the dead. And you can come out from that verdict of the wrath of God being upon you by turning from sin and embracing his only answer. The only way in which he will be satisfied with you is to find you in Christ. I pray that God will honor his own name and show that he indeed does still act, entering into human history in marvelous, miraculous ways, in the same way that he raised Christ from the dead, by moving into your dead spirit and raising you up with him and seating you with him in heavenly places. May he do that by his grace. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and wonder of the gospel. And the simplicity of this statement that Paul made, and yet it's absolutely infinite glory and wonder that he would not trust in himself, but in God who raises the dead. May that power operate within us to sanctify us, and may it work in such a way as the voices of many will be giving thanks to God for the deliverance we have by his death. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.